Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heather. And uh, we're doing <clears throat> we're doing two iterations of the same movie today. We are talking about the 1954 version of A Star is Born and the 2018 version of A Star is Born. Uh, Corwin Heller, are you ready to get started? I am. All right. Uh, shall we tackle this chronologically, or do you? Would you rather go reverse chronologically? Oh man! In my head, I feel like I was really just watching these to compare rather than review outright. But I am very much open to doing it any which way you so choose. So you know that's actually a good question because I was considering that as well as like how how to approach the discussion. So here, you know what? Let's do it bit by bit. Uh, I'll, I'll start with just the rundown of the information about the two of them, and then we can just kind of tackle them because it's the same story basically so we can kind of tackle them we can talk about them simultaneously as we move through the the plot so let me just give the rundown on the these two pictures so 1954 as a star is born came out in the year i just fucking said um (laughs) it was directed by george kukor um i assume that's how you pronounce that the screenplay this version of it is by Moss Hart. It is based upon the 1937 screenplay by Dorothy Parker, Alan Campbell, Robert Carson. And then the story for the 1937 version was done by William A. Wellman and Robert Carson. So that's all the writing credits for this movie. Uh, it stars Judy Garland, James Mason, and Jack Clarkson. So, sorry, Jack Carson. I added too many letters to that name. Sorry, <laughs> Jack. Um, Multiple too many letters. Several too many letters. It had an estimated budget of $5 million um, and had a cumulative worldwide gross of $6 million. So um, that seems like a very high budget for 1954, but I believe this film also had a very intensive um, technical filming process. So I think a lot of stuff was done for this movie in particular. It was reshot partially through filming to be Warner Brothers' first film shot in Cinemascope. Yeah, and I think that the director, George Cukor, and Cinemascope had to like work together on literally how you shoot this because I think Cinemascope... First off, this movie looks like it takes place in the 60s because of how advanced the Cinemascope is in this. And I think part of that is the use of tight shots in this that were very new to this type of filming. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that budget went to the technical piece of it. But who's to say? Um, Plus, there's a lot of sets here. So, again, who the fuck knows? Um, This movie's tagline is the most anticipated motion picture of our time is now ready for your acclaim. And that feels like it's the tagline for like the dvd and not the movie so right which i feel like happens a fair amount especially with the older ones Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, this movie was nominated for six Oscars, did not come home with any of them. It was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role for James Mason, Best Actress in a Leading Role for Judy Garland, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Color for Malcolm C. Burt, Gene Allen, Irene Sharaf, and George James Hopkins, Best Costume Design in Color for Jean-Louis, Mary Ann Nyberg, and Irene Sharaf, um, Best Music Original Score for Harold Allen and Ira Gershwin for, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Best Music Original Song, not Original Score, uh, for the song, The Man That Got Away, and then Best Music, music Scoring of a Musical Picture for Ray Heindorf. Um, this movie is about a film star, helps a young singer and actress find fame, even as age and alcoholism send his own career in a downward spiral. So now let's turn quickly over to the 2018 version, which again came out in 2018. Oh. It's directed by Bradley Cooper. It was written by um, Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, and Will Fetters. And then below that in the writing credits section is all of the names I had just, oh, sorry, actually, no, only Moss Hart. And then this film is based a lot more on the 76 version, which is very evident um, on the plot. So a lot of the writing credits here refer back to the 76 version. So this is based on the screenplay written by Gregory, John Gregory Dune, Joan Didion, and Frank Pearson, and then also referential to the original story by credits for the original screenplay for the 36, 37 version, William A. Wellman and Robert Carson. Whew. All right. That's again, the writing, just the writing credits. <laughs> um, this film had an estimated budget of $36 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $436 million. So that is certainly a success. Um, this film's tagline is oh i actually i'm not sure i see one all right so we don't got one that's fine um, it has to have one it doesn't more more movies shouldn't that's my opinion i don't necessarily disagree with you yeah uh this movie won one oscar on the back of two four six eight nominations uh, it won for Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures Original Song. Uh, that's for Lady Gaga, Mark Ronson, Anthony Rosamundo, and Andrew Wyatt for the song Shallow. Um, it was nominated for Best Achievement in Sound Mixing for Tom Ozanic, Dean A. Zapan Zapancic, uh, Jason Reuter, and Stephen Morrow. Nominated for Best Motion Picture of the Year for Bill Gerber, Bradley Cooper, and Lynn Howell Taylor. Best performance by an actor in a leading role for Bradley Cooper. Best performance by an actress in a leading role for Lady Gaga. Best performance by an actor in a supporting role for Sam Elliott. Best adaptive screenplay for Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, and Will Fetters. And best achievement in cinematography um, for Matthew Libatak. Libatik. Sorry, Libatik. Sorry, Matt. Um, all right. So where, where do you actually want to start? with how to I have parse out these two movies. I have absolutely no idea. Oh, right, we'll figure it out on the fly. So one of the main differences between these films is the Jackson slash Norman main character. Because, mm -hmm. and it's actually a pretty gigantic difference 
that shows itself in a lot of places and greatly affects, in my view, the way the story impacts. And for me, the main difference is, first off, the first way more minor difference is that in the 54 version, uh, Norman Maine is an actor and in the 2018 version, Jackson Maine is a singer. Um, So different careers, which really, who gives a shit? But they're Um, still both stars. Yes. However, in the 2018 version, Bradley Cooper, which I'm just going to start saying Bradley Cooper because the fact that the first name of the characters is different is very annoying. Um, Mm -hmm. Bradley Cooper is still very successful. Um, He goes out places and is recognized, which uh, Norman Maine or James Mason gets as well. But he also like still is touring like he seemingly is still at quite a peak of success whereas james mason's version of this character very much so is not he is very much so on the way out um due to both his age his and his uh difficult workability um he is very much so very quickly on the outside looking in when it comes to his career and kind of Hollywood as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think about, and I, you know, Corwin and I briefly talked about the idea of talking about the 76 version because Corwin t- accidentally <clears throat> watched it, forgetting which version I had selected. Oh my, hold on one second. <clears throat> Jesus Christ. Throat's dry. Um, and I admittedly haven't seen that movie good. in forever because I don't give a shit. I remember it not being the best version of this movie. Um, so I think I watched it when I was like a child and then never thought about it again. Um, I would solidly put it at the middle one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about the difference between those two characters there? Um. For the 54 and 2018. Yeah. It's definitely so even in the 76 version, the Jackson main character, the the male lead, I guess, is the easiest way to decipher the three characters because they all share a name with each other, but never the same name. It's like Jackson, Maine, something Maine in the 54, 56, and then the 76, it's like Jack something. Um, regardless, both the lead in the 76 and 2018 are both very similar, you know, high profile. John Norman. Country. John Norman is his yeah. name. That's Chris Christopherson's John Norman Howard. So they just totally said, fuck that shit. I'm pretty sure I remember him saying, just call me Jack. I'm sure he did because Jack is a nickname for John. So we can take that. And then Barbara Streisand's character's first name is Esther. But then they changed the last name to Hoffman instead of Blodgett. But whatever. Um, Continue your point. Um, They're essentially the same character. you know overall if you were to you know um you know rock and roll superstars recognized everywhere they go you know all three of them are you know raging alcoholics uh you know 
substance abuse, things like that, much more prevalent in 76 and 2018 when, you know, those eras involved heavy substance abuse and not just alcohol, or at least that's what um, was kind of portrayed of that era or, you know, common, common accepted. Um, But it's crazy to me how so much of these characters, especially these two men, or three men. God, this is going to get so and fucking a baby. confusing. <laughs> <laughs> is just they start and stop at societal norms. And because those societal norms change so drastically throughout the decades, the characters change drastically throughout the decades. And you see them get significantly more, I guess, charismatic and not necessarily just terrible people towards women and the substance abuse is lessened each time or the alcoholism is lessened each time the substance abuse is heightened each time because of those change changing societal norms and it's the big thing between the three of these films for me was that kind of ever growing ever evolving um you know, widely accepted bad boy personas. Um, but as a whole, they genuinely become better character, better people as characters as time progresses. Better people as characters? Like the characters themselves become better people overall. So like the first film he's kind of an asshole to start off. Like he doesn't seem very genuine as a person until you get like halfway through the film. The second movie, it's like the first scene. He is just this kind of drunk jerk, but you can tell he opens up more to Barbara Streisand's, you know, much quicker, but still has that kind of rough around the edges, you know, 1970s era, like men don't cry kind of feel. And then Bradley Cooper's character is very much from the get-go, you know, very much more welcoming, more warm as a person, you know, more in tune with himself as a person, um, just genuinely treating the people around him better, not just um, Lady Gaga, but, you know, the people that work for him, the people that work with him, you know, the fans around him, that kind of thing, much more accepting and, and just genuinely just a better person all around. Which I think does the movie a disservice. I disagree. Which, which I know Completely I knew you were opposite. gonna I knew you were gonna disagree. I I think the alcoholism of Jackson Maine, mm-hmm. Bradley Cooper's version, is so much more subdued a plot point because of it. When with Norman Maine the first time you see him, he is drunk. Yes. And he's a happy drunk, but he is drunk and he's causing an absolute ruckus and it is not at all productive, helpful, or welcome. And you don't really get a sense. Like, they they show you a moment of Jackson Maine's alcoholism when he passes out on the couch um, the mm-hmm. first time Lady Gaga stays over at his place. And 
if you're familiar at all with the plot of this movie, which again, this is the fourth time this movie has been made in quite literally almost a hundred years of this movie existing. So it's not exactly a foreign plot <laughs> at all. Um, so, but if you didn't know it, you might not go right to the idea that he's an alcoholic because people can get drunk one night and need help from their brother, especially rock stars. So I, I think it leads to a weird arc where we need to very suddenly be alcoholic or understand and internalize the concept of Jackson Maine's alcoholism. Whereas Norman Maine's, it is very much so from the get-go. And then when he makes a connection with Judy Garland, that's the first sign of how impactful that relationship is upon him to the point where he actually makes an effort to see her sober the next time he sees her. And there is a, a thick outer shell of alcoholism that she breaches rather than seeing Jackson Maine totally cool when he first meets Lady Gaga and really for the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie and then get introduced to the concept of his alcoholism afterwards. And see, that's what I like about it because it allows you to grow that connection between, it allows you to, kind of almost accept the character for who he is as a person and not just as a drunk. And I think it helps you connect to Jackson Maine significantly more and be able to kind of accept and appreciate and, you know, welcome the relationship between the two, you know, titular characters more because you see him as who he really is and not just, oh, here's this drunk fool stumbling into a show being a fucking asshole and then having that first initial reaction, that first um, you know, time meeting the character being so off-putting that that bad taste stays with you, with you for the rest of the film. See, I disagree. I had I never connected with Bradley Cooper's character in his I version. never connected with uh, Norman Maine. You're not supposed to. <laughs> okay. It's not what the, not what the movie's about. But there's like a clear dis, there's a clear want in the 2018 version for you to connect to Bradley Cooper. And I, I don't think that character is set up in a way to do that. Why and not? I think a lot of... Well, I'm getting there. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the differences in how the two versions of the main character, literally, and his name and his role in the film are set up is what leads it to. So like when Norman Maine gets jealous of um, Judy Garland's career, right? Mm -hmm. It's at a point in which he is getting bought out of his contract with the studio, which if you're unfamiliar with this concept, concept basically instead of um, actors individually signing contracts to work on individual films, Um, This was under the studio system. So you would sign a contract with a movie production company where you owed them five movies or 10 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you would just work for them. It was almost more like a traditional kind of job. Anyway, um, so he found out his contract was getting bought out. He is basically for all intents and purposes out of the forced into retirement. And with Jackson Maine, it's so much more petty because his career is fine 
and he's just he's a combination of jealous of how quickly I guess Allie got to that point, which I mean, I don't I don't know why you would be. You kind of helped with that. And the fact that she changed her music style to be more conducive to her. And I understand certain elements of it because pettiness is within all of us, but it is a significantly larger amount of straight petty than I think you get out of the 54 version, which actually has depth. But the pettiness kind of derives from the fact that his career isn't fine because he's losing his hearing so dramatically. It's ramping up so much that his career in his eyes, he knows it's ending. He knows he's had, you know, he's had his peak and it's ending and he's kind of on that downslope while she's passing him on her upslope while she's still rising to that level of fame, you know, practically overnight. Meanwhile, he's on the opposite, you know, trajectory. And well, the pettiness only comes out when he is drunk. It's one of those things that's highlighting, you know, kind of the two sides of him as a character, the one where he is this, you know, overly loving and overly supportive husband who wants, you know, nothing but the best when he's sober and when he's, you know, clear headed and then turning into this drunk, petty, angry asshole when he's drunk. Well, I mean, yeah, that that part's not going to be unique to any version of this movie. It's the point. Um, But the idea that he's losing his hearing is the sign that his career is, you know, devolving, I think, is a shitty point because he's making a conscious choice to do that. Obviously, his hearing is having problems and there's nothing that's going to prevent his hearing from getting worse to varying degrees. And obviously there's nothing to make his hearing appreciably better. That is explicitly mentioned in the film, but he's at war with his brother. Who's trying to tell him you must stop doing the thing you're doing. And Bradley Cooper goes, I don't want to stop the thing I'm doing. And it's tough to take that very seriously, especially in a movie that's about something like addiction, which is so severe a condition and a genuine mental illness to have it again be such a petty point of i want to be with the audience i can't be with them if i'm wearing in-ear monitors which is also might i add a very normal thing for musicians to wear um but what you're saying is contradictory because you're saying it's an active choice for him to behave that way but also highlighting the fact that it's a mental illness it's an addiction that he can't fully control no Alcoholism is is a mental addiction that he cannot fully control, a mental condition he cannot fully control. Choosing to not wear in-ear monitors to save your hearing is an active choice. He's it's a style choice. I think at that level, when it comes down to affecting your ability to perform and your ability to do the things that you did to reach that point, and you know, drastically changing in your mind your career outlook is a very dramatic decision or drastic decision, I should say, that isn't always going to be an easy choice for you to accept, an easy thing for you to accept. I would, I I, I mean, which I could take in a smaller scale. So like, and one of the, this is another one of the the points I'm trying to drive at. 
Norman Maine's alcoholism directly affected not just his relationship, because that, again, the point of the movie, but his career. Part of the reason he was losing his career was because of the alcoholism. And I'm sure alcoholism can contribute to ear loss, hearing loss in some way. Alcoholism can wear down your body in a variety of functions, which is never actually tied to anything in the film, the 2018 version. So really, in sincerity, Jackson Maine's alcoholism affects absolutely nothing other than his relationship. Outside of that, it's not bringing down his career appreciably outside of that incident at the Grammys. Whereas well, Norman Maine's actually is. It's a full-fledged downfall from the alcoholism. Whereas it's more so just a personality problem, an interpersonal issue in the Jackson Maine story. But they show him fucking up during multiple concerts because he's inebriated and you know can't remember you know the guitar movements can't remember you know the words to the songs and having incidents on stage that are affecting his performances but he's still playing on stage and he's still doing it it's a big difference people are still buying those tickets for now no one's hiring norman maine that's a big difference. Okay. I think we're nitpicking this as in like, I feel like we're trying to compare these as if they were, you know, nearly shot for shot, character for character, re, like carbon copies. When obviously, you know, changes were made to change how these characters react and changing the emphasis of what aspects of their life are being focused on and what's being you know destroyed by their afflictions and i think it's just a creative choice to focus more on the relationship aspect rather than the career aspect because that's just a more compelling side of it i don't think that's what i'm getting at with it i'm trying to eventually tie us to the ending which i find to be significantly more impactful in the 54 version because of norman Maine's descent whereas i do not like the ending of the 2018 version because of jackson Maine's descent but let's take some time to talk about the female leads in these films because it's also very big departures in how the movie goes. And a large part of that is because these movies take place in vastly different decades. Um, in 2018, uh, Allie becomes a pop star and really is, you know, it is in the music scene more so than anything else. And in 1954, Judy Garland, uh, Esther, is a musical theater actress. And so there are lots and lots of scenes out of musical theater productions that are put in the 54 version. Um, whereas in the 2018 version, it's a lot of concerts. And mm. I think that can also be a big difference in how people will watch this movie mm -hmm. because the, in that respect, the 2018 version is infinitely more relatable than the 54 yeah. version. People that still helps. go to concerts. People do not often still in, in uh, experience musical theater, especially in the raw capacity that the 54 version puts out. I can't stand musical theater. I know you can't. I knew yeah. you'd hate that Which part. Which I will pat myself on the back because I just kind of from the get-go was like, I know what this is going to be. And I know I'm going to be biased if I really focus in on it. So I chose not to. 
And guess what? I didn't let it affect my feelings towards the film. And I think, I think the the fifty four version could cut a significant number of the minutes devoted to the musical theater part of it and be totally fine, um, because at, there was a lot of it. At what point are we going to talk about the actual minutes of that movie and and the things, the changes that were made because of that? Because I feel like that's something we do need to discuss. In what way? The fact that there's a lot of this movie that's just missing because it was cut for time and then lost. Yeah, yeah there was there's a there's like 30, I think 30 minutes of film that got cut for the theatrical release. And then some of it got put back I think like 15 minutes of it got put back, but they didn't have the video anymore. So there's like black and white and sometimes color stills um, with a voiceover over top. And it's not the most uncommon thing to have happened during this time. There's a scene in Spartacus that's kind of like that, where Anthony Hopkins had to dub over a part because of um, a fucking what's his name? I forgot died. And Anthony Hopkins did like a super great impression of him. Um, Regardless, it is disorienting. They didn't really need to be there. Tough to say when you don't have a a visual like, (laughs) you know, the rest of the movie, but um from what I read into this today, apparently the film that was initially released with the cuts, you know, still there and did not include that, you know, um, I guess it montage would be the right turn or, or regardless, whatever they would call it, was just a complete mess that just missed out so much of the story that it was just impossible to follow. Yeah, that's the thing I kept thinking is I, I like while it was happening, I was like, I'm not really enjoying this, but I also am not sure how you get to where these scenes after this are without this part. Right. Which um, very much understood and just kind of had to just take it on the chin and accept it. Yeah, it, it's tough because like you can't fault like you can fault the film for it and you also can't fault the film for it because it's it's in the movie. You're going to have to critique it on that point, but it's also very obviously not what anybody intended to happen. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just the way the news goes. It's the way it goes. Um, anywho, uh, what'd you think of Lady Gaga in her, uh, really her, I don't know if she's done any other acting, but really her, her standout uh, breakout performance in the 2018 version. I thought she was excellent. I loved her in this. I loved her and Bradley Cooper. I thought they were both excellent, excellent um, leads. Yeah, I thought she was fine. I, I think she, I think she did very well for herself. For herself, obviously, the singing was good. I think she was stoic at points, but that's also mm-hmm. to be expected with people who aren't necessarily actors. But at the same time, I think she handled herself very well, which I think fit the character really well. For someone who's meant to just be kind of a person kind of coming into this world, coming into this and being new to stardom and fame and, and not necessarily new to uh, not production, but performance. But at that level, at that stage, I think, you know, stiffening up a bit in some of those scenes is genuinely more endearing than if she came out and was just like Liza Minnelli out there just putting on a show. 
Yeah, and that's that's another very big difference is that um, Allie is not in the, I guess, professional uh, performing capacity at the beginning of this film. She does shows at a drag club, and that's kind of it. I would be hard-pressed to assume she'd be getting paid for that. Whereas um, Esther, Judy Garland's character, uh, is a paid professional performer of some kind, something a little bit more vaudeville um and then also the singer in a jazz band um so she is in the scene um Mm -hmm. of performing but i definitely did like that character trait for the 76 and 2018 version where they are more like like barbara streisand is you know quote unquote discovered by chris christopherson in a dive bar you know Lady Gaga was discovered in a, a, you know, drag bar. Like it's, it's not known performers or professional performers trying to not necessarily trying to fight for their breakthrough because everyone is, but it is a more, you know, rags to riches story that just is a little bit more compelling than like, Oh, he just happened to walk into like a very nice club where, you know, she already has her set and whatnot. And yes. I'm just going to end my sentence before I just start. Well, I mean, he, he, he walks, Norman Maine walks into the jazz club because he was looking for Judy Garland after they had quasi performed on stage together. Um, but it's not like it's this back alley dive bar, you know, random I mean, I, I, I will argue the point that it shouldn't matter the context of the building. If they're still performing prearranged and rehearsed items. You know what I mean? Like the fact that one person, like Barbara Streisand, was singing in a dive bar, a you know practiced and arranged piece, doesn't change the fact that Judy Garland was also playing a prearranged, practiced. Uh, right, thing. but like it's it's one is like a swanky, more high end club, which would you know presumably mean oh she's more known, you know more well um compensated like there's she's further along that path than the other two films Uh, i would again disagree only because a dive bar is a far more relatable concept today than what a jazz club was in 1954 a jazz club in 1954 is essentially a dive bar you were not look. You were not looking at the picture of success when you were looking at um, Esther, whatever her fucking last name was. Let's just move on. Uh, yeah, we're just digging at each other now. We're dig- We're just fighting for inches. Um, what do you? Th- I I just have to ask because I he is my favorite part of the 2018 version. What do you think of Andrew Dice Clay in this movie? Who? Andrew, Andrew. Dice Clay. Andrew, I don't know who that is. Fuck yourself, really? Yeah, I don't know who that is. The comedian? Andrew Dice Clay. You never heard of Andrew Dice Clay? No, Andrew Dice Clay. Here we go, Googling. I have never seen this man before in my life. Are you fucking serious? That's amazing. How how do you not know Dice? (laughs) I I don't know what world you think I live in. He was the bad boy of comedy in the 80s. Okay, here's the thing, Josh. I was born nearly two decades later. I mean, fucking <laughs> me too, but like, 
It's dice, man. Dice you was just there. Keep saying dice. No, dice is a tool you use to play like card games. This is not synonymous he, with a comedian. Andrew Dice Clay was a um, somewhat controversial figure in comedy in the '80s because he was one of the first comedians to go really with like a personality. Um, especially one that wasn't just a, my wife, um, which was a very common thing for a lot of comedians. And also was notorious for um, either stealing jokes or paying comedians to take their jokes. I remember I heard, I think Mark Marin talk about how uh, Dice's whole attitude was basically, I, I gotta be famous and uh, I'm just gonna go do that now. And, and kind of brute forced his way into being a famous comedian, which I appreciate. Um, and he's also known for wearing a lot of leather, um, big sunglasses, and being the largest persona you could possibly encounter. And so seeing him in this movie looking very normal was um, quite disorienting. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Who did he play? He was the dad. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. He was uh he was uh he was the dad talking about Sinatra all the time. Which is funny because also everyone thinks Dice is Italian because he has a heavy heavy Brooklyn accent and is a very gruff man, secretly Jewish. No wonder you know and love him so much. Which oh, I didn't find that out until like um relatively recently. Um uh, but yeah, his real name is Andrew Clay, Andrew Clay Silverstein. Oh, Bruce's dad. Okay. You mean Springsteen? I said what I said. Oh, folks. <laughs> oh, buddy. Um, yeah, they're they're very different portrayals of careers for the women in this film, and very different interactions with the men in this film. Um, even aside from the career aspect of it, it one of the sorry, I just I was going to close out of this tab that I googled Andrew Dice Clay, and like the third result is a New York Times article called "Does Society Need Andrew Dice Clay?" No, it does not, but it is better for him <laughs> <laughs> simply because a man exists oh, out there who the calls The first line nice. of this article is, "I get it, girls, it's rape." <laughs> Oh, that's dice. That is that is definitely dice. Um, uh, continue on, sir. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say that I thoroughly enjoy dice as comedy, but I am happy that something, something as wild as Andrew Dice Clay exists and walks around on the planet Earth. Um, anyway, the one I'm again pressed to call it truly an advantage of the '54 versions profession is that there is a storytelling element in certain numbers that happen again i think there's too many of them but it there is um one very kind of odd and confusing number in which um judy garland is watching a movie that she starred in that also has a flashback in it <laughs> and so you're watching a movie's flashback that then flashes forward to the regular part of the movie but it's still the movie and then you back out to the movie you're watching which is with judy garland in it it's very odd um cool so thank you for explaining that part of the film for me because did not pick up on that little detail yeah it's 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 weird 
Um, one of those one of those times where it's just like I don't know what's going on, and I'm just going to have to accept that. Right. Uh, whereas you know, again, you just kind of get a lot of concerts with the um, Alley version, the uh, Lady Gaga version, which again, again, that just is the nature of the job. Um, I there the way though that they spend time with and eventually get to the point of marriage with their respective versions of the main character, um, just rolling with that dual meaning pun, um, is very different because there is a seemingly relatively decent chunk of Judy Garland's character's career that she doesn't know what happened to Norman Maine because he like couldn't find her again again in part due to his alcoholism whereas kind of the minute that Jackson Maine meets Lady Gaga they are inseparable mm-hmm. and to then it, it, it again then leads to a kind of a, a a little bit of a different dynamic where Judy Garland becomes much more afraid of losing Norman Maine again. Whereas with the Lady Gaga version, it just kind of has a linear career path from there on out. You could say streamlined. I think that's definitely fair. Again, there's a lot of dance numbers (laughs) in the 54 version, Um, but it is a pretty noticeable difference that I think again leads to a a difference in impact of the ending. Uh, What do you think about the career paths um, of these two women in these two versions. Honestly, the biggest takeaway for me is just kind of that appreciation that we've come this far with allowing women to kind of take this path rather than being, you know, dependent on, you know, the men in their lives to allow them to continue on that career path rather than just saying, Hey, I'm doing this and I'm, you know, I don't, necessarily need you to allow me to continue on or to take that next step or whatever it may be it's it's a lot more uh, what's the right word i don't know i should just carry a dictionary with me fuck yeah Um, we'd love to listen to you turning pages (laughs) well that's pretty much what it sounds like now when i just say random shit and do nothing um it's all just white noise um but regardless it's i think it's a again like a natural growth from kind of the society and how society as a whole has grown and the empowerment of women has taken massive steps since 1956 and kind of just blatantly seeing that so night and day in these two films just you know juxtaposed you know 10 hours apart is uh really nice to see in what way uh what do you mean explain to me wherein lies the difference i think judy garland in her film had a lot more pushback from the people around her and it was much more active and uh continuous throughout the film whereas for you know lady gaga there was basically a lot of discussion about people saying things in the past but once that you know talent showed itself nobody really stood in her way and it was more about supporting her and getting her there rather than trying to change her as a person yeah well they 
I was actually going to say there is definitely some of that with the stylists that they have in the movie and you know just like some of that little little shit whereas which they which they put in after Lady Gaga had gained some success and but they tried to do to Judy Garland before she became very successful so there was right. like that big difference point um yeah and the oh, there's a whole part of the Judy Garland backstory dance number <laughs> that is just about her constantly getting rejected from jobs which is supposed to add some layer of the whole, I did this for a very long time. I've earned my spot in addition to the whole, wow, the Hollywood current system really fucking blows. Um, as, which, yeah, it certainly seems like it does. As someone who hates musical theater, that, you know, segment of scenes was far and away the best because it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. It was very fun. Um, and again, if they pretty much like stopped it after that, that would be great. <laughs> but <laughs> And I love musical theater, but oh my God, yeah. there was so much. Um, yeah. Three hours of musical theater is too much. Well, and that's what's theater. so funny. Well, not funny, but like disorienting about the movies that in the beginning, like there's that opening number, which really just serves as a vehicle for you to meet Norman Maine. Right. So that, that's fine. It, it hardly even registers as musical theater. Um, so the really most of the beginning doesn't have it. The last like hour and a half, I think has one single number in it. But then the middle just is like inundated with it. Mm-hmm. Like act two is just so much musical. And again, some of the numbers totally fine. The flashback sequence where you, we learn about Judy Garland's life. That was fun. The number that she does in the living room, totally fun. Everything else. Oh my God. Kill me. <laughs> it was no, it was nonstop. Um, I did enjoy this movie, <laughs> but yeah. Um, it is also very different, though, largely due to the nature of the careers, though, how much time not in the same shot the two characters are. Because with Lady Gaga, she starts her career very quickly, but touring with Jackson Maine. So the images in the early portions of her career are very much so tied to the character Jackson Maine because of that. He literally, again, brings her on tour. Um, Whereas with Judy Garland, there's large segments of the film where Norman Maine isn't really there because you're looking at Judy Garland's career rise, which involves shooting films that Norman's not a part of. And I think for me, that again is a is a better indicator of how far he has fallen as compared to the Jackson main uh, version of him because you do not see Norman Maine very much in the mm-hmm. beginning of this movie, and that is because nobody wants to work with him, and he is out. He he is a cast off from this society. So. It is, it is an interesting difference that is, again, due to large part the different careers of these women have in this movie. But um, And I, I personally think that I enjoy the 2018 version more because, again, it does focus more on the relationship aspect between these two people rather than, you know, their careers. And you see a lot more of Jackson Maine, Bradley Cooper in the second film because the emphasis is on the relationship that they have together and and the ups and downs that it has rather than specifically the ups and downs of their two careers. And 
again, like it's just one of those directorial choices, those story choices um, that just changes the emphasis of the film. And I think, you know, we can both agree that that's the largest difference between the two, um, the two films, I should say. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily better or worse as a film, you know, to focus on one versus the other. But the choices they do make lend itself to each of them in their own way. I just happen to like the relationship aspect more. And yeah, I think I think that's where we're going to end up landing on a lot of it. Um, Who would have thought movies come down to taste? Huh. Unless they're like really bad, in which case Unless they're really bad. Yeah, yeah in which case you're wrong. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I I enjoyed the additional agency that Judy Garland has because she is separate from Norman Maine so much, and her career seems very independent from this guy. Whereas Allie's career, I keep switching between character names and people names, which I do we a do lot. It but every it feels, time we do. It feels especially <laughs> noticeable for this movie for some because reason. Because there's not like there's six different characters we're talking about that are all essentially the same. Same two. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I, for, I forget what point I was trying to make, and we're just going to fucking two-step on out of here. Uh, one of the I, other... Sorry, go ahead. I think part of... Uh, I guess the one point I had was, you know, for Bradley Cooper and, and Allie's career, it's more of a... Again, I just did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be less of a, hey, I'm here to, you know, make things happen or, or put situations out there get you gigs and more of just a hey you can do this i'm here to support you with what you have to do and just more of a supportive coaching you know significant other giving you a helping hand just meant moral mental support rather than i'm gonna get you gigs i'm gonna get you you know i'm gonna help you make your career things like that right um one of the other big differences in the two movies is the presence of uh, Sam Elliott's character in the second one. Um, there is no, I think, good comparable character in the, the 54 version. There's the one director who works for whatever studio they called the one that makes the most appearances in the film, um, who has some level of relationship with Norman Maine, but it's not anywhere near the same. Uh, what do you think of Sam Elliott and uh, his performance in this, as well as his character in the 2018 version? I, I think the character itself is a lot deeper. It's a lot more layered in the 2018 version. They give Sam Elliott really just more to work with other than just kind of being an asshole the whole time. They kind of dive into that relationship and because it's more of a, you know, personal connection between the two, you know, Jackson Maine and, and his brother, it allows a lot more to be built between them, you know, during the film, other than just, hey, here's a, a guy who, you know, kind of fixes up my messes and is an asshole and doesn't really give oh, a no, shit. I, I don't think you can really compare the Sam Elliott character to anybody else because the PR guy in right. the first one, did it, yeah, Sam Elliott is very much so singular to the 2018 version. Yes. Did I not answer your question? Was I answering a different question that was not asked? Well, I, 
you're making it sound comparative, and I just want to make explicit that I don't think there is anyone in the 54 version to really compare that character to. So what were you trying to ask? Just what you thought of the the role, the oh. storyline, and the acting. I really like Sam Elliott's character. I think he, you know, performed it well, and, you know, they kind of have their, you know, ups and downs of, you know, coming together, you know, their fight, breaking apart, and then, you know, coming back and kind of having that, you know, reconciliation right before, you know, the end of the film and um, things take a dramatic turn. Whereas I think the kind of path for the PR guy in the first film is just fairly steady. And even if the perception of them being, you know, more friends than just business partners in a way, the actual intent and the actual, you know, motivation is unchanged throughout. Right. So I don't, I don't really care for that motherfucker. Um, I think it's an interesting character. I think, um, Sam Elliott does a phenomenal job. Although I will admit that every time he's on screen, I can't help but think, "Do the Coen Brothers direct this?" Because every time I, I see his face, <laughs> I go, "Is he? Is this a Coen? Is there secretly a Coen Brothers movie?" Um, he's one of those uh, actors that I see Sam Elliott every time, and not the character. Like, yeah, which I think speaks to how well he did in this. Because every time I see him, I think you think of like the slow talking, very friendly guy mm-hmm. that you see in both Community. And there's not community parks and rec and um, the big Lebowski. Lebowski. Whereas in this, he like the first time he says, fuck, it's like, Oh, Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Elliot. Who is this Sam Elliot? This is new. Um, It is. And I, I think I generally enjoy his very small and subtle arc. You know, there's references to the fact that uh, Jackson may was trying to be more like his older brother. Um, and there's there's a few like C slash D level subplots that involve him and that kind of dynamic that I think which I love. Well, I think are interesting, but I also can't help but think how much can you fit into one movie and have it be emotionally rewarding. And that's kind of I think where I struggle with the role, which is I love Sam Elliott in this movie. I think he's does such a good job acting. I do generally enjoy his subplot, but mm-hmm. then when like we come back to him at the end of the movie, I was like, "Oh, dude, I forgot you were here." Like you, there's too much else happening for me to have kept track of you too. I I will agree that I you know when he kind of runs into him at what was it the concert or the Emmys or whatever it was where like they're running backstage and it's like, "Hey, I want you to come back out with us," and he's like, uh, "Nah." Kind of. Yeah. Um, I, it was like, oh, right. I forgot he was there. But at the same time, like looking over the entire course of the film, I think there was just the right amount of, you know, subplot and backstory sprinkled in, you know, throughout the, you know, just spread out over the full course of the film to kind of give you that, you know, emotional reward when. Ali and him are sitting together and, and kind of reflecting over what had happened and all that. And I think there is, you know, their last interaction, you know, Jackson, Sam Elliott, um, Ali and Sam Elliott. I don't know Sam Elliott's character's name, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think there is enough 
sprinkled in throughout to kind of give that reward there at the end. I think I feel about that character the same way that like MLB and NFL reviews work, which is when in doubt, do you just go with the call on the field? So Sam Elliott isn't like Sam Elliott is in this movie and I'm not sure I would take him out, but like I, I, I probably, I probably wouldn't take him out, but if Sam Elliott wasn't in this movie and you described to me the Sam Elliott character and role, I'm also not convinced I would have put him in. You know what I mean? So I'm just going to go with the call on the field, mm. which is he is there and that is fine. Sure. Okay. Because I think if you didn't have Sam Elliott in this movie, which obviously would make a, a different movie that, you know, I know it's not quite just that easy, but, and then you described that plot. I think you go, Oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure where it would go. Like fit, like, like written down on pages where it would literally fit into the typed out script of this movie. Um, whereas with him in the movie, it's like, I'm not sure I need this, but I do like it. Um, and mm-hmm. so I will defer to the fact that he is there. He is, he thinks, and therefore he is. So there we go. I'm, I'm glad it's there. I'm okay with it. It's, you know, I think it does add enough, but I'm not going to go out of my way to, I mean, it's no Andrew Dice Clay. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's just a superstar that. I'm probably the biggest fan of anywhere. Yeah, I got the, the fucking jacket he wore <laughs> with the dice on it. <laughs> I'm almost upset that they didn't have like all those guys playing cards at some point and him just like rolling dice just kind of as an added cameo. Even His though I have no idea who he is. Exclusively rolling dice. Every scene, whether it made any sense or not. <laughs> just like him dragging Bradley Cooper into the bathroom at the Emmys and just throwing dice at him out of his pockets. Just dice, 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 dice. I'm dice. Andrew motherfucking dice motherfucking clay, bitch. Uh, 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 that clay. probably would have taken no, me out a little not. bit, but I'm okay with it. M- Mr. Clay, no, you're playing Lorenzo. <laughs> Mr. Clay, your character's name is Lorenzo. That's um, what I'm saying. Dice, dice. Dice, Lorenzo. <laughs> oh god oh yeah it's so great um i i guess let's talk about the endings right i mean is there anything you want to say about the anything that leads up to that that we kind of didn't cover maybe let me check my notes actually also handwritten some notes hand wrote is the correct way to say that handwritten some notes uh when i was at work today um and I, they're in my pants pocket just across the room. So at some point you're going to have to just start talking and I'm going to need to walk over there. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, the Corwin all, Heller special mildly of, prepared, but not fully. Yeah, exactly. Like all of my notes on my phone are about comparing this to the 76 film, not the 54 or 56 one. So it's a lot of Chris Christopherson. It's, it's really funny because you know, Corn and I were talking about this when we realized what had happened um, because I, we had a conversation where I was said I was willing to bet that Warner Brothers or whoever at HBO Max like made the decision to get the 2018 version was like, eh, fuck it. We'll get all the other ones too because all four of them are on HBO Max, which I think is in part how this happened. Um, 
And I think they did that under the assumption that everyone was going to, to look up A Star is Born to try to find the 2018 version. And then maybe some of those people go, oh, there's three other versions of this. I should see what that's all about. And then like either accidentally like Corwin or um, by force of suggestion, end up watching more versions of this movie. That's my conspiracy theory. Uh. Yeah, so I did go and get my notes during that kind of conspiracy theory breakdown. Um, I figured you would. Nothing, nothing serious leading up to the ending. Alrighty then, let's talk about the ending. So, basically, what happens is for diff- various reasons throughout the film, aka addiction, the thing the movie's about, our hmm. uh, various versions of Norman Jackson Maine uh, go into rehab. Then they both come out of rehab and then for again, differing reasons uh, have some well, level of a relapse. Huh? I think, I think it's a, it's very much the same reason of them basically hearing someone of importance in their, you know, significant others lives, you know, someone meaningful, you know, in, in their relationship, basically coming out and saying, man, you fucking suck. You're the worst. You're bad for them. You need to fuck off kicking them when they're down essentially yeah fair enough you're, yeah you're right um Say it again. relapsing to uh various differing extent now oh, again again pretty much the same deal uh and then uh killing themselves and then the uh couple scenes thereafter showing some fallout and recovery um or level of mourning and dealing with it from uh, the women in these characters' lives. So, Corwin, tell me what you thought of the endings to these two movies. I felt a lot more emotionally connected in the 2018 version. Um, But I will... Like, I connected to both scenes, and I connected to both characters in those scenes. Um, I'm a guy that's struggled with depression, so I get to a degree what they're going through and you know their mindset during those times you know like in that moment and for me it was just a lot closely a lot more closely connected to bradley cooper's um like when he cooked that fat ass ribeye steak that was like very clearly meant for like three people or just one very fat man it's like oh like shit's going like when he put it for the dog it's like oh okay, I kind of see where this is headed. And I think just kind of the big difference for me was really just the advancement in filmmaking techniques, just allowing you to get a lot more, you know, in tune with the character, just getting closer to the character, you know, building up that emotional, um, you know, intensity through a lot of close shots, a lot of, you know, alternate lighting and and things like that, that are just because of technology, because of, you know, filmmaking has advanced so much since 1956. That was a long time ago um, before my parents were even born. um, It just allowed a lot more of a connection in that moment. And uh, that's what I got to say about that. So far, so many of your criticisms of the last two movies I picked are they were old. Yeah, I have been very clear about the fact that I don't really love 
that era of cinema. <laughs> I really don't. I just don't like the way those films were made compared to films in like the late 60s on. It's just style. For Shane. For yeah, Shane. I know. Um, Josh, there was a period in time where I must have seen you watch 15 movies in a row, and I don't know if any of them were in color in that snack shack at HealthQuest. I grew up on old movies, man. Yeah. Grew up on it. The classics. Classics. God, you're so pretentious. I'm not pretentious. No, it's... Well, a little bit, but... Yeah, In that case, it's really just... (laughs) You don't even listen to Weather Report, bro. Uh, you were just making up names on Twitter today. I don't. Oh, I was not. Um, those I am were not real convinced people. those are real. If you know Alex Fast didn't come back at you with like repeating of the names and like knew who they were, <laughs> I would have been very easily. Bro, you know, all my friends know who Joe Zavinil is. <laughs> fuck off. All my friends have Wayne Shorter's entire collection on eight track. <laughs> Bunch of bitches. Oh, fuck, man. I love Jaco Pistorius. <laughs> I will I admit, though, Chuck Rainey yeah. is a little bit more of a deep cut, but I don't think he's that much of a deep cut if you know your bassists. For anyone who is unaware of Jaco Pistorius, this has nothing to do with anything, but Jaco Pistorius, famous bassist of the Weather Report, he's the man to quasi-invent the fretless bass by taking a butter knife and removing all of the frets from his bass because he was like, I have to figure some shit out because I have to be famous. Um, and Chuck Rainey was a longtime session musician who worked with like Steely Dan and Aretha Franklin um, and like a whole bunch of James Brown, like a bunch of people. Um, so, yeah. I knew some of those words in that order. Yeah. And Wayne Shorter is a, a famous jazz guy. And then Joe Zavinell is a famous jazz guy. And they got together and they formed the Weather Report, which is one of the first jazz fusion bands in music history and one of the best to fucking do it. Heavy weather. Teen Town. It's all there, man. Uh, anyway. <laughs> it's all there, man. Um, we're moving on. <laughs> I hate myself. Um, so the endings of these movies, they they, they come about in kind of different ways. Um, the, the catalyst for uh, Jackson Maine's um, return to alcohol is kind of almost also the catalyst for his eventual suicide, which is um, Rez, who is Ali's agent, kind of just laying into him. And then Ali and Rez arguing about what's going to happen with her European tour. And she wants to bring Jack and Rez doesn't want to bring Jack. And basically it boils down to Jack's like, I'm getting in the way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I, I don't want to get in the way for future. And in the 1954 version, that character, Rez, like the manager character who serves both functions, it's, it is not the case. It is split up between uh, Norman Maine's PR person who hated him, um, who's, again, telling him directly to his face, fuck you, go die, um, essentially. And then... After a, a big long bender, he is presumably passed out at home and overhears a conversation, much as Jackson overhears a conversation about the European tour, but overhears a conversation which um, 
unlike Allie, who's trying to bring Jackson along with her, um, Esther is saying, I'm going to retire. I'm going to absolutely stop my entire career at whatever presumably young age I am at so that I can take care of Jackson because he is the most important person to me and in my life. And her director is um, the second person in the room. He's basically like, are you sure? Is that what you want? She's like, yeah. And he goes, all right, I'm, I'm with you. I'll start drawing with the paperwork. Um, and I think it's also a, it's a sm- relatively small conversational difference, but I think leaves a pretty big difference on impact because whereas you've been saying a lot, Corwin, I'm picking on you now, bitch. Uh, <laughs> the difference between focusing on career and focusing on relationship feels as though the 2018 version got more relationship. That's very much so felt more career. Whereas the 54 version felt more relationship, both with the catalysts of careers being relatively on the line. And mm-hmm. obviously the main Norman Jackson, main character um, being a uh, boon on the success of these two women. Um, it was more so Ali trying to enable and bring in Jackson to her world. Whereas Judy Garland was saying, I'm going to leave my world and go into your world. And I think those are two vastly different sentiments. I can definitely agree with that in my own defense. Good, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) I think the big difference for why um, the, you know, it was a lot larger of a fiasco in the 2018 version was because you know, it's the same essentially award ceremony, you know, the same level of award ceremony for both of the, you know, main actresses. But because in 1956, it's not necessarily televised. And I know oh, it was, they show the cameras. Oh, did they did? Okay, then yeah. I missed that part. Um, regardless, it's a much smaller audience witnessing that in that era than it would be in 2018. Whereas yes, it would be something that's discussed and talked about, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, when there's, you know, three TV channels, it's hard to focus on, did you, you know, see what Jackson Maine did on at the Oscars? Well, I would argue with only three TV channels, it's pretty easy to be like, did you watch Mm. that thing you have a 33.3% chance of watching? That's fair. Um, uh, You know, having a tv in its own right was definitely not something that was as widespread but again it's going to get discussed in papers my thought was really more of how much an event like that would be discussed ad nauseum on social media and it it just would not ever disappear so it's i think in my mind it was a lot more detrimental to the longevity and, and overall career of Allie than it was um, Judy Garland because fuck character names we're going all over the place it's again tough to compare the sentiment of the two different eras because it, is Kim Kardashian's career tainted by all of the outlandish things that Kanye West did pre-divorce you know like wearing MAGA hats and trying to run as a Republican in Wisconsin I don't think it affected her career at all even though they were pretty bombastic and wild things 
But I mean, he whereas also, in 1954, never, he did kind of go up on stage and do some reckless. No, shit. I know, I know, but I'm trying to think. But at the same time, that is a very severe thing that he did that got a lot of attention on social media and right. far from positive. Um, whereas in 1954, the social mores were much less severe in order to be felt more severely. Like the idea of divorce as just as a concept was more harsh back then. How right. much skin gets shown was more looked upon at that time. Like I don't, I I can in some ways understand what you're saying, but I I don't know how well it translates across to be able to make an actual judgment to that effect. I mean, I will say we've seen people go on stage kind of fucked up and you know steal a spotlight and just go on a rambling speech uh speaking of kanye west we've never really someone blackout drunk collapse on stage and then stay there get up and then proceed to give that rambunctious speech and then piss themselves standing next to their wife i feel like while the societal norms and what is accepted has definitely, you know, broadened since 1954, I think the kind of extent to which that's fucking batshit crazy kind of ramped up a lot more in the 2018 version. It's not a huge deal to me either way. Like, it's really not a make or break factor for me. It, it doesn't really affect the outcome of the film. It doesn't really affect, you know, my opinions of the characters or how this story unfolded. It's really just, I kind of want to know what like the correlation would be between the two, like what the levels would be between the two. And I'm just, I'm curious. So, what would the equivalent be? Of what? <laughs> Drunkingly pissing your pants on stage in front of your wife while she's accepting a Grammy. What was the equivalent of that being in like, like in 1954? Yeah. Well, I I, I think you saw it. <laughs> eh, I I yeah, I'm, okay. I mean completely serious. I Touché. think <laughs> I think that is the time of or the uh, year style equivalent for that era, as wild as it is. Because like I think if someone did that today, no one would really give a shit. But at the same time, I think America 1954 was greater than tenfold more prudish than it is today so it's again it's just so hard to tell but again like you said doesn't matter really that much um so let's talk about the i guess actual scenes of the death of both of these characters because they're also very different Mm -hmm. um and i think speaking in terms of the subtlety versus brute forced nature of the two um, interruptions at the respective award ceremonies that very much so translates or at least falls in line with the methodology and representation of the death of both of these characters. Um, Jackson Maine hanging himself in his garage and Norman Maine wandering off to sea. Uh, at sundown, a very um, romanticized death scene, or, or at least a very 
visually romanticized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's probably the best word for it. Whereas Jackson's is a lot more, a lot darker. Yeah. Um. So what did you think about that? Again, it's a big part of the reason why I did appreciate and connect more with the 2018 version. Um, I mean, for comparison, the 1976 was him just getting in a car accident and that's just kind of it. And like Barbara Streisand, like flies in on a helicopter and like consoles his dead body. It's, it was so weird in 76. I'm almost, I'm not almost, I'm actually upset that you didn't watch it just because we don't get to talk about that scene. Um, But I think the 1954 version was about as far as they could take it in 1954. I mean, I'm sure they could have gotten a few steps past it, just, you know, as far as, you know, heavy handedness goes, like they could have kind of grittied it up. But at the same time, I, I don't know of any movies around that era that really discuss suicide openly. Um, at least off the top of my head. And it's one of those things where I really wouldn't expect much more about that in 1954. Whereas, you know, mental health is very much at the forefront of, you know, our societal issues and it's heavily discussed. And, you know, its target audience when this film came out was, you know, the younger generation is very much in tune and very much, you know, they're very knowledgeable about mental health and what it, you know, how it affects your mindset and your ability to, you know, think critically and um, the idea of suicide being, you know, this ultimate decision based off of your mental health is just a lot more, you know, at the forefront of the conversation. So I think it fits very well in 2018 compared to dropping that into a 1954 film. Um, but again, we are in, you know, at this point we're in 2020. I, again, I've said it multiple times. I do connect more with that scene. It is a lot we more are in 2021. What did I say? 2020. You're about uh, six I, months I, behind I, there. Buddy. I have no regrets. <laughs> uh, I was staring at a calendar when I said that too. I was staring at the four numbers, 2021. Such conviction. <sighs> I just, I, dude, my brain just doesn't work. Um. Yeah, I'm just gonna end it there because I lost myself a little bit. That's ah, fine. Um, I I I disagree with the notion that the 54 version is the way it is because they wouldn't get away with making it more severe than that because we've seen some pretty pretty aggressive movies come out in the fifties and, and forties and thirties um, tackling some pretty intense subject matter um, suicide and mental health, obviously not really being one of them because uh, it's the fifties. And if you're sad, be happier. That's that, that I'm sure that was a common piece of advice, but you know, again, like we talked about M which deals with child I've heard murder that from my father in this century. <laughs> oh, haven't we all? Oh God. Uh, oh, thanks dad. Um, Anyway, boy, I really hope this I, is not an episode my mother picks to listen. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. Well, we're gonna keep it moving. Um, I, I think that the 
tenderness that they choose to go with is very much so a choice and not a restriction. And I think part of what put me off so much from the 2018 version was how dark it chose to be when you, I don't, I don't think you necessarily need to as someone making a film um, pick the most extreme version of whatever it is you're going to be doing and coming sure. off of as big of an, of a, of a scene in terms of how much dramatism there was with it and how much larger it was in the 54 version um, with the, the Grammy scene. I think the depravity of the death scene in the 2018 version is much and I think the other thing that it doesn't do that the 54 version accomplishes very well, in my opinion, is represent how much that death is sacrificial. I think you get a lot more of it out of the 54 version in all large part, not just because of the manner of death itself, but also the lead up to it. You know, he has... Uh, his death scene comes very shortly after the conversation that he overhears between Judy Garland and whatever that fucking guy's name was Um, like very shortly after. And he has a conversation with Judy Garland on his way out to the beach whose ocean he walks into. And it really drives home this concept of what he's doing this for that I think you lose quite a lot of in the way the 2018 version handles that storyline. It, in a weird way, feels like it's for him than it does for Allie because of the way that they chose to go about the buildup that I think does itself a great disservice. I think because so much of what they showed Bradley Cooper going through is very close to his chest. Very, you know, they show that discussion of between him and Allie about, you know, him like almost holding her back, not being able to, you know, be there for her, just not being, you know, health. Like I took it that in his mind, he couldn't kind of live up to what she needs from him and not being able to perform and sing and be that almost star, um, you know, at the Grammys and, and failing her in that way. And then putting him down that path. I think it was a lot more internal in the 2018 version and I can, I can understand, you know, that thought process of, you know, where he was and sure that could have been something that was expressed visually or, you know, expressed, you know, in some form of dialogue better, but I don't necessarily think it's because his mindset was, you know, more selfish in nature. I'm not saying it was selfish in nature. I just more so. 
like more individualistic than, yeah. uh, is what I will put it more more no, about self determination yeah more about self determination of the end result than the fifty four version is where it's far more driven home the idea again of of sacrifice right I mean they they have the discussion in the film that this is not the first time like they have him discussing wanting to do this when he was 13. Yeah. So this wasn't just him being drunk and being upset and sad. It's okay. No, this is a lifelong affliction. This is a lifelong battle with depression and alcoholism that's coming to a head rather than just a, you know, singular moment of, of feel like of, of an impulse, so to speak. Right. And I think that certainly has its place and has its own impact in its own way. The idea of kind of the melding of the these two anguishes, you know, the idea that he is a hindrance upon his wife, in addition to um, his battle with addiction, in addition to his battle with depression. Um, but I personally, me, would rather the 54 version with this truly selfless take on it, even though it's a shit word to put it, because I don't want to make it sound like Bradley Cooper's being selfish, because it's, it's not. Um, but it, again, has less of the individualism that the first one has in that respect. Sure. Like there, like, like like the idea that Jackson Maine tried to hang himself when he was twelve. Thirteen. I believe it is twelve. Uh, it could be. I am not confident enough in my answer. Uh, yeah, it is twelve. Go fuck yourself. Fuck. Um, Shit. you know the idea that this was in some ways a pre-existing notion that predated his relationship with Ali adds some level of individualism to this concept that is not present in the James Mason character or James Mason's version of this character. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, and then the true ending of the movies take relatively different routes, but I think functionally basically the same um, afterwards, Lady Gaga um cancels her European tour um, and has a conversation with Jackson Maine's brother um, and she performs a song at, I forget what the occasion was, but she um, performs uh, a song that ends up being revealed was written by Jackson right before he died in what is a very interesting scene change that I will ask you about in a moment. Um, in the 20, 1954 version, um, Vicky, which is to say Esther, which is to say Judy Garland, <laughs> um, it gets a lot more screen time here at the end as it kind of goes a little bit farther. And I, I'm not trying to make this sound positive or negative. I'm, just laying it out um, into the grief process wherein there's a scene in which she's refusing to leave her house 
and one of her old bandmates has to like yell at her to leave to go to this charity function that she said she would do. Um, there's also a scene in which she goes to the funeral and then comes out from the funeral, gets ma- ma- mobbed by the paparazzi. Um, and then it ends rather than with a song, which honestly really felt like it was going to again, because this movie mm-hmm. spent so much time in song instead ends on the very basic sentence in which um, Judy Garland says, hello, everybody. Um, this is Mrs. Norman Maine. And then applause and the film ends. So they, again, functionally speaking, I don't think these two movies did anything that isn't recognizable in the other one, but they do take relatively different routes to get there. Um, so what do you think of the true endings of these movies? Oh man, you are really, so I remember <laughs> the 2018 version well with Lady Gaga performing that song. I honestly don't remember the 56 nearly as as well. Even though I watched that one today and the other one yesterday, I, I remember the 18 one more. Um, so it, neither left enough of an impression on me to really be able to break down the difference between the two. That's fine. Uh, I do want to ask you, as I previously referenced, uh, what you thought about that kind of hard cut, if it if you have any recollection of it, um, right in the tail end of Ali's performance when it, like, again, hard cuts to um, her and Jackson by themselves at a piano, I believe still in the rehab building? might have been when they were home. No, they were home. Mm-hmm. Um, as he is laying out the song for her after he had written it. Oh, I, I love the, you know, choice to do so. I think those kind of hard cuts during really emotional decision or emotional scenes are extremely effective so I'm, I'm a big fan of that choice i'm also a sopranos fan so hard cuts are, are really great for me i didn't like it there because it went from so loud to so quiet i did like that scene i wish they like like the auditory level change threw me off so much that i i like and immediately recoiled from it but i do like that conclusion that's that's part of it for me of why I liked it was because it is such a, a shock to your system, essentially. It really, you know, for me, drives it home a lot more. And, you know, it's just a larger impact because of that, you know, sensory shock. Right. Um, and obviously it also um, closes the circle in which in the beginning of the film, uh Jackson Maine performs on stage a song that Allie had sung for him that she wrote. And at the end of the film, Allie sings on stage a song that Jackson Maine had wrote. Um, so therein lies the con- circular conclusion of, of that kind of oh. miniature arc. Um, whereas again, with the 54 version, you get these, you get this really large dramatic scene from Judy Garland, which, where she is, she's, yelling and in a and in a furor over um a grief-stricken furor over her um Josh you're Jewish you can't say furor uh f-u-r-o-r different word oh okay got it um over over you know the the idea that she must now rejoin society to some respect which I think is a really interesting scene that you wouldn't necessarily expect out of this movie based on what had shown you previously 
And then to end on the rather quiet note that it chooses to end on, I think also has a decent amount of impact. Also closing a loop in a lot of ways in which Judy Garland takes the beginning. The film starts with Jackson Maine taking the stage when no one was expecting him to. Um, granted, he was not necessarily invited to, but where his presence wasn't exactly anticipated, uh, whereas um, Judy Garland at the end of the film takes a stage when I don't think anyone was necessarily expecting her to, although under gravely different circumstances. So again, both I think functionally do the same thing, but they're two different routes to get there. Um, yeah. So Corwin, you got mm-hmm. anything else on either of these two movies before we get into ratings and reviews? Let me flip through my post-it notes from work today. I like that all three films end with the final thing that the main male character says to the main female characters, I just want to look at you again. I like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I liked looking through and seeing all like the little differences and scenes that they kept and, you know, made little changes to, to scenes they kind of just let go and, or added in just little choices like that was really cool watching all three films, essentially back to back to back. Um, but having that be consistent through all three of them was really cool to see. Um, not even really cool. It's like, it, it was impactful. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. <laughs> the change in music style just throughout the three was kind of hilarious just because of it being necessarily rock and roll, rock and roll to kind of pop. And then just this like wild musical theater of just the 1950s. It's just a huge difference from the other two. Um, and then uh, just kind of how in the third film, that was really the only one that kind of viewed alcoholism is as a disease and something that needs treatment and help rather than just guys being dudes or being a fucking drunk asshole. Um, And yeah, just as, you know, chronologically time moves on, the male characters are kind of less sloppy, less, you know, just brutish with their drunkenness and things like that. Just differences in what is society society views as acceptable um and yeah that's that's what i got for that yet oh i like that lady gaga threw the fucking punch in the bar because the guy does it in the 76 one chris christopherson and then watching the 18 version immediately after expecting bradley cooper to start the fight and it's lady gaga that just comes out of nowhere with haymakers mm-hmm. pretty neat I have a line in here that just says, I love Barbara Streisand. Love Babs. That We don't even need to be discussing these movies to kind of throw that out there. Love Babs. What's your favorite mil, uh, mil, what's your favorite film of Barbara Streisand's? Anyone who says anything other than Funny Girl is wrong. I've never seen Funny Girl, so my answer is meet the fuckers. So it's funny you say that because Funny Girl is a Jewish classic. Um, Uh I have never once met a single Jewish person in my entire life who has not seen it. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm being completely like every Jewish person in the world comes out of the womb having seen Funny Girl and Fiddler on the Roof. Everyone has. I've never seen either of those movies. Every Jewish person 
out the womb has seen them. It's hilarious. What is the... Nick, continue. Finish what you're thinking. um, Like, it doesn't... Yeah, I I, I lost my train of thought. But yeah, go. what were we going to (laughs) say? What would be like the non-religious person version? What would my family's version of that movie be of like, you've definitely seen it? Um... I guess Jeremiah be, Johnson. That is a question. <laughs> I feel like that's a question I should be answering, not you. Uh, seeing as it's yes, uh, I don't know. But you should watch Funny Girl. It is, I will warn you, a musical theater movie, but it's a comedy, unlike a lot of the other ones that you would see. So all of the song, seventy-five uh, percent of the songs are funny. They're they're not. They don't take themselves very seriously. What kind of like music is it? Is it like? I mean, wild? the movie came out in like 1968, so it, it's it's musical theater. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. All right, you got anything in? Well, uh, uh, no. Well, give me give me your review. Your or your stars. Give me the stars. Uh, stars, <laughs> stars for 56. I'm gonna give it a three and a half. For 2018, I'm giving it a wow yeah i fucking adore this movie this is great fascinating um mildly amusing not necessarily fascinating i don't know if it's it's pretty fascinating you don't like musicals uh i don't i think and i had that thought often during this of like uh, this is not the kind of musical movie that I was expecting because it is stage performances and it's just like watching a concert documentary, essentially. It's just, it was a lot easier to watch for me. I enjoyed it a lot more. What's your favorite because, concert documentary? Uh, ACDC. I forget the name of it. I haven't seen many. Gotcha. I like that one. Yeah. For me, it's got to either be The Last Waltz or. Stop making sense. Um, sure. Yeah. Everyone should watch Stop Making Sense. It's underappreciated. Anyway, um, yeah, I I thoroughly enjoy both of these movies. I will. One thing that I will say, um, that we didn't get the chance to really talk about too much because we had so much to talk about with these two. This is actually a very hard movie to do. And I'm not sure it seems that way because it's been done four times. Um, and on the surface, it's a relatively simple idea to like describe to somebody. But if you think about all that must be encapsulated in a movie like this in order to get the point across and to make the ending feel impactful, a lot needs to happen. A very significant amount of stuff, both emotionally for two individuals, as well as time needing to go by. Um, So reality, this is a very hard movie to make. Um, And the fact that it has been done four times, I think, speaks to that. I think part of it is that this is also a very easy film concept to change and adapt as time marches forward and society changes. Whereas, you know, trying to remake a movie like the Godfather isn't really going to have any sway because it, it, it very much so is that 
brief point in the late 60s, early 70s, and trying to do something like it today isn't going to feel the same. You could make this same movie in another 20 years with whatever Mm -hmm. society and music looks like at that point in time, and it will feel right. Yeah, I want to see this made with XS Extension. I think it's actually pronounced. I think it's actually pronounced XXX Tentacion or some shit like that. It's like weird. It. it, I remember someone telling me it's not pronounced how you think it is, but (laughs) I I also don't listen to his or its music. So, what am I to say? He's Um, also dead, so you know. Oh well, there you go. So it doesn't matter. Just reading that shit on gravestones. So, um. (laughs) Anyway, that being said, I. I also think, however, that the 2018 version will be much, much better remembered for its music than literally anything else. And I both mean that positively and negatively. Um, Music's so fucking good. And that's part of the reason, because the music in the movie is absolutely phenomenal. I was Um, listening to the album all day today. It's an absolutely phenomenal soundtrack, um, which, again, is very much so to its credit. But I also think that that does a lot of the work of the movie that I think covers up for some of its other failings because it is so enjoyable to watch the music scenes for both the way that they're shot and the fact that the music is very good. Um, whereas in the 54 version, I think it gets held back a lot by the music scenes because they are so much and very dated. Yeah. And instead you get these beautiful slideshows that you get to watch. (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. Oh, Oh, that's that's a huge negative for me. Luckily it's in the beginning and you can kind of get past it. Uh, there's there's like multiple ones. I feel like there was they were spread throughout. No, they were only in the beginning. No, there were none post intermission. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, they were. They were. I don't recall. They were all condensed. It was a combination of the slideshow shit and then like very grainy video where it's like, oh, we found it, but it's not great. And someone was like, yeah. well, we can't keep putting up fucking pictures, so <laughs> might as well throw that shit in. Um. I also do like that it shows a non-linear rise to success for Judy Garland. I think that's interesting, even though it's pretty gently touched upon because of the fact that, like, you know, that video <laughs> didn't fucking exist. Um, regardless, uh, all all those words to say, I think both films were were good in their own type of way. Me as a person, I clearly enjoy the 54 version more, but because of some of the fatigue i think i feel with how drawn out a lot of those music scenes are which again product of the era if i watched it in 54 as a man who like is living in 1954 same with you i don't think we'd find it that weird or off-putting because that's just kind of what she did but looking at it in 2021 i I was about to say fucking 2018 looking at it in 2021 it's it has that eye to it so i'm going to give the 54 version a four and a half and i will give the 2018 version a four Touche. All right, Mr. Cheller. Yes. Shall we um, move on to next week's picks? Sure. All right. I'm going to pick a movie I have been uh, very excited about, even though I think the director of it is a total fucking herb. Um, I'm going to pick uh, a recent release 
fresh out on HBO Max, In the Heights. Sorry to go back to back musical theater, but I am really excited to watch this movie. Um, I, it, it takes place in a part of New York City that part of my family is from. It takes place with uh, heavy references to the Dominican culture, which I have found myself intertwined with at various points, which I love Dominicanos de la Mio Personal. Um, and it features some artists that I have actually talked to, like uh, Mr. Manuel Tony Peralta. Um, so I, I feel a connection to it uh, and I want to see it. So there we go. Picking, picking 2021's In the Heights. Hmm. I saw that I saw basically the scores uh, of this film and I was very intrigued and then I saw that it was in fact a musical theater and I was like eh, fuck I don't really want to watch that then uh, and now I get to now you have to now I have to <laughs> um, I'm going with a 1970s era film Starring Steve McQueen. Do you want to take a, a see if you could take a guess? No. Okay. Can you Mag take a guess? The Magnificent oh. Seven. No, not the Magnificent Seven. Oh, the other one. Which one? The, the one I'm thinking of, but I can't think of the name. The, the Great Escape? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> We're going with the 1971 action classic Le Mans. What's it called? Lemon. Laymans for people that don't give a shit about pronunciation. It's about the Le Mans 24 hour race. Right, right. Le Mans the, Classique. Yeah. Steve McQueen driving a car. What more could you want? I, uh, yeah, I've never heard of this movie. Um, so I've definitely never seen it. Have so... you heard of Le Mans before? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think. Le Mans. Anyone tangential uh, to sports knows Le Mans. It's like the most famous race if you don't live in America. Then it should be the most famous race if you do live in America, but NASCAR exists, so. 24 years du Le Mans. That's close. Um, it's the oldest active sports car race. It's pretty dope. Yeah, I hear I, that they did it in ancient Rome around the Coliseum. Yep. They did. It was really more to just wait out the lions and tigers, let them fall asleep or get and tired. And bears, oh my. No. Fuck bears. Uh, but yeah. Fuck Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> ah, fuck. Sports reference. So check out Juicing the Numbers. Um, all right, cool. So that's 1970s Le Mans, and that is uh, 2021's In the Heights. Um, so we'll be getting some French on. We'll be getting some Spanish on. Um, it'll all be a, a, a swell fucking time for next week's episode. Y'all should come back. Check them. Check them out. Uh, Mr. Corwin Haller, anything else before we get on out of here? Le Mans. No, I got nothing. <laughs> You really should have not said anything else after that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. We never post from that account. So if you'd like to follow Corbin on Twitter, you can do so at Corbin Heller. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. Check it out for more baseball and very specific musical references. 
um, if that's your thing. Um, if you'd like to send us emails, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. Lemo. <laughs> oh, wait, shit. <laughs>